The Torah content for this week has been sponsored by Judah and Naomi Dardik in honor of Rabbi Moskowitz's second yard site and in appreciation for all those whose love of Torah and excitement for ideas shines in their teaching. Hello, this is Rabbi Match Neweiss. It is currently Tynus Esther at about 2.40 p.m. And I was sitting down to review a blog post I wrote a couple years ago on Purim, one of the two blog posts that I've written. And uh, I just wanted to review it because uh, I don't remember what I wrote. And I figured I might as well read it out loud and make it into a podcast episode. So uh, I uh, hopefully there are not that many typos or mistakes, and I don't have to like edit myself as I'm reading. And uh, let's just go. Here we go. So the title of the post is Haman's Ancient Motive. Part one, the question. Mordecai's refusal to bow down to Haman is one of the pivotal events of Megillus Esther. Were it not for Mordecai's decision and Haman's reaction, the fate of the Jews would have played out quite differently. Let's review the incident in the Pesukim at the beginning of chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the son of Hamdasa the Agagite and elevated him. He set his seat above all the officers who were with him. All the king's servants at the king's gate would bow down and prostrate themselves before Haman, for so had the king commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow down and would not prostrate himself. So the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Now it happened when they said this to him day after day, and he did not heed them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would appear, would prevail, for he had told them that he was a Jew. <clears throat> when Haman himself saw that Mordecai did not bow down and prostrate himself before him, Haman was filled with wrath. However, it was despicable in his eyes to send his hand against Mordecai alone, for they had told him the people of Mordecai. So Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the entire kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. All right, those were, that was chapter 3, Pesukim 1 through 6. I've always considered Haman's reaction to be rather extreme. Yes, Haman was egotistical, and Mordecai's flagrant disrespect would have undoubtedly dealt a blow to his ego. But was he really motivated to wipe out all the Jews simply because this one Jew refused to bow down? This stretches credulity and makes Haman seem more like a Disney villain than an actual human being with real human motives. That's the question I'd like to take up in this blog post. What was it about Mordecai's refusal to bow down that motivated Haman to annihilate all Jews? The answer begins way earlier than we might think. Part 2. The Targum's answer. Those who know me are aware that I tend to prioritize pshat over drash. It is for this reason that I love Targum Unkelos, the authoritative Aramaic translation of the Chumash, whom I consider to be the most minimalistic commentary. Unfortunately, there is no Targum Unkelos on Megillus Esther. Instead, we have a different Targum, one that freely weaves drash into the pshat. The authenticity of this Targum and its incorporated midrashim is vouched for by none other than Rav Haigaon, who wrote, quote, here in Babel, there are several Targums of Esther which differ from one another. One has many additions and midrashim, and the other has none. End quote. Uh, that's from Ginze Schechter, 86. All citations of the Targum in this blog post refer to the former, uh, meaning the one that has uh, many additions and midrashim. My love of Targum in general is what led me to explore the, this Midrashic Targum, despite the differences from my usual preferred commentaries, and that exploration led me to a new answer to our question. Before we take a look at the Targum's quote-unquote translation, quotation marks are necessary because his Midrashic embellishment makes it more of a commentary than an actual translation, let's review the original Pasuk which talks about Haman's reaction. So the Pasuk says, However, it was despicable in his eyes to send his hand against Mordecai alone, for they had told him the people of Mordecai. So Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the entire kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Compare that to the Targum. So this is what the Targum says, and again, this is a translation that weaves in Drush. So the Targum says, 
However, it was despicable before him to send his hand to kill Mordechai alone because they informed him that Mordechai descended from Yaakov, who took the birthright and the blessing from Esav, the ancestor, literally the grandfather of Haman. And the Jews are the people of Mordechai, and Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who who were throughout the entire kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordechai. According to the Targum, Haman sought to avenge Esav, his ancestor, by annihilating the descendants of Yaakov, who stole Esav's birthright and blessing. That is why Haman wasn't content with sending forth his hand against Mordechai alone. To him, this wasn't about Mordechai, it was about all the descendants of Yaakov. The Targum follows this theory consistently throughout his translation, quote-unquote, of the Megillah. For example, chapter 4 recounts the dialogue between Mordechai and Esther via Hasach, a.k.a. Daniel, according to the Midrash, as accepted by the Targum. The Pasuk reads, so this is in Esther 4, Pasuk, Perak 4, Pasuk, Pasukim 9, 10, and 11. Hasach came and told Esther the words of Mordechai. Then Esther told Hasach and ordered him to return to Mordechai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court, etc. Okay. Check out how the Targum translates, quote-unquote, this seemingly content-free Esther 4.10. Okay, so again, the Pazik says, Then Esther told Hasach and ordered him to return to Mordechai, saying. So this is how the Targum translates it. Esther told Hasach to go and speak to Mordechai and commanded him regarding the matter of Mordechai, saying that he should not incite the conflict with Haman regarding the grudge that Haman held between Yaakov and Esav. Esther 5.1 tells of Esther's appearance before the king. The Targum inserts a lengthy prayer that Esther recited before she made her entrance. Her prayer concludes with the following request, quote, Have mercy on your people, yours with a capital uh, Y, and do not give over the descendants of Yaakov into the hands of Haman, son of Hamdasa, son of Ada, son of Biznai, son of Aflitus, son of Diosos, son of Peros, son of Hamdam, son of Talion, son of Asnosimus, son of Harum, son of Harsum, son of Shigar, son of Ganar, son of Parmashta, son of Vaizasa, son of Agag, son of Sumkar, son of Amalek, son of Eliphav, Eliphaz, son of the wicked Azav. Uh, end quote. According to the Targum, Esther viewed the entire conflict between Mordechai and Haman as a conflict between the descendants of Yaakov and the descendants of Esav. The Targum even goes so far as to trace Haman's genealogy past Agag, where the Megillah itself stops, all the way back to Esav. Uh, parenthetically, this gene- genealogy appears to be literal from Haman to Agag, but not from Agag to Amalek, since the latter two were separated by over 500 years. That, so far as I can tell, is all the material that the Targum gives us to work with. However, if we take the Targum's lead, I believe we can expand upon this theory, and in doing so, attain a deeper understanding of Haman's motives. Part 3, Support for the Targum's Claim According to the Targum, Haman was enraged by the fact that Yaakov took the birthright and the blessing from his ancestor Esau. On the surface, this might sound like an outrageously unrealistic and stereotypically midrashic claim, but if we think about it, it's not as far-fetched as it initially appears. Haman was the descendant of Agag. Though some take this non-literally, it would appear from the detailed genealogy cited above that the Targum took it at face value. He maintains that Agag, the king of Amalek, was the great, 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 great grandfather of Haman. We know what happened to Agag. Over 500 years prior to the events of Purim, Shaul the Benjaminite waged war with Agag, the Amalekite, and even though Shaul erred by having pity on Agag himself, he did kill all of Agag's people, i.e. his extended trimal family. This episode most certainly bequeathed to Agag's descendants a legacy of anti-Jewish hatred, particularly against the offspring of Binyamin.
And Agag himself was the bearer of a legacy of anti-Jewish animosity on account of the war between Bnei Israel and Amalek that occurred shortly after Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, which took place several hundred years before the battle between Shaul and Agag. Bnei Israel were on their way to receive the Torah at Sinai when they were ambushed from behind by the nation of Amalek, who... Undeterred by the display of divine might in Egypt, nevertheless set its heart on the total annihilation of Israel. There too, Amalek was decimated to the brink of extinction and driven back to the hills from whence they came. And what motivated the nation of Amalek to attack Bnei Israel so soon after Yitzhak Mitzrayim? According to a midrash in Yalkut Shimoni, Parshas Chukas, it was none other than the desire to avenge Esau, their ancestor, the same yearning for vengeance that the Targum ascribes to Haman. The midrash expresses this in the form of a dialogue between Esau and the nation of Amalek. Quote, Esau said to Amalek, Oh, how much I have toiled to kill Yaakov, and he has not been given over into my hands. Apply yourself to take revenge on my behalf. Amalek said to Esau, How will I be able to vanquish him? He replied, Let this Masorah, this oral tradition, be in your hand. When you see Yaakov's descendants stumble in sin, pounce on them. Uh, that's the end quote of the Midrash. The Midrash then goes on to enumerate several instances in which Amalek utilized this strategy. But we see from here that there was a living Masora passed down from Esau to Amalek, charging the latter with the mission of taking revenge for the theft of the birthright and the blessing. Indeed, the Rabag at the end of Bashalach explains that this is the reason why Amalek chose to strike Bnei Israel at this point in time. So this is a quotation from the Rabag. The Amalekites were the descendants of Esau and knew about the matter of the blessings that Yitzchak blessed Yaakov, thereby making the, the descendants of Esau servants to the descendants of Yaakov. It was also known to Amalek what Yitzchak said to Esau in his blessing to him that, quote, he will live by his sword, end quote. And that when the circumstances were such that Esau had the upper hand, it would be possible for him to cast off the yoke of the descendants of Yaakov from upon his neck. Thus, Amalek strategically went to war with Israel at a time when they were naturally poised to defeat Israel, for the descendants of Esau were successful in matters of the sword and warfare, as Yitzchak blessed them, and Bnei Israel had a lowly psychological disposition at that time and were not trained in warfare. And, based on Amalek's knowledge, they were in the wilderness without bread and food and were tired and weary. For this reason, Amalek hastened to do to them, uh, i.e. to ambush them before Israel, uh, before Israel reached its success, which would result in the descendants of Esau becoming servants to them. Uh, end of Rabag quote. According to the Rabag, who generally speaking tries to avoid Midrashim and sticks to the Pshat, the Masora of Yitzchak's blessings to Yaakov and Esau was alive and well in the nation of Amalek. They may not have been God-fearing, but they certainly believed in God and in the reality of the blessings. It is for this reason that they sought to take advantage of this rare moment when they had the upper hand against the descendants of Yaakov. If they could manage to wipe out Bnei Israel now, before they got the Torah and established themselves as a sovereign nation in Israel— then they would be able to permanently free themselves from the yoke of servitude to the Bnei Yaakov. Thus, in a sense, they would have restored the blessing and the birthright to Esau, their ancestor, and in their eyes, the rightful heir. It is reasonable to assume that the Masora of that this Masora of vengeance was passed from Esau to Amalek, from Amalek to Agag, and from Agag to Haman. I was delighted to find this theory corroborated in the 19th century Megillus Esther commentary of Rav Yitzchak Shmuel Regio, who explains how the history of Amalek's conflicts with Bnei Israel fueled Haman's hatred of Mordechai and his people. So this is a, a quotation from Rav Regio's commentary. First, you need to know and understand that the cause of Haman's hatred against the Jews was not only on account of Mordecai's refusal to bow down before him, but aside from this, and even before this, the great enmity had taken root in Haman's heart, which he inherited from his ancestors, the Agagites, who were offspring of Amalek. It was known how Amalek tormented the nation who left Egypt and struck the weaklings from behind. The Pusuk testifies about the wickedness of Amalek, saying, Amalek did not fear God. It is also possible that word had reached Haman's ears of God's statement— 
quote, a war of Hashem against Amalek from generation to generation, end quote, and Israel's commandment to, quote, wipe out the memory of Amalek, end quote. Just as Haman remembered without a doubt the harsh war between Shaul and Haman's ancestors and the execution of Agag at the hands of Shmuel, all of this strengthened Haman's hatred and the hatred of the members of his household against the Jews. And now the author of the Megillah explains this to us in the statement, however, it was despicable in his eyes to send his hand against Mordecai alone, for they had told him the people of Mordecai. Behold, if Mordecai were from another nation, it would have been enough for Haman to take revenge against the man alone. But once he had heard that he, that he was a Jew, that this was a Jew, this pre-existing hatred against the entire people was awakened, and he thought that it would be beneath his dignity to send forth his hand against the lone member of this abominable offspring. Therefore, he sought to annihilate them all. That's the end of the excerpt from Rav Regio. Some might wonder why Haman didn't take action against the Jews at an earlier point in time. Why did Mordecai's refusal to bow set into motion the, the revenge plot against Bnei Yaakov? I have a theory based on the content of the blessings. Let's look at the wording of the blessing that Yaakov was given by Yitzchak, which he stole from Esau. This is in Brachis 27, Psukim 28 and 29. Uh, so the bracha says, May God give you of the dew of the heavens and of the fatness of the earth and abundant grain and wine. Peoples will serve you and regimes will prostrate themselves to you. Be Lord to your brethren, and your mother's sons will prostrate themselves to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. End quote from the Pesukim. The bracha, which was passed down in Amalek's Masorah, specifically mentions bowing. According to the bracha, the indicator of who is ascendant, Yaakov or Esav, is who bows to whom. With that in mind, let us attempt to paint a picture, a new picture of what Haman saw when he encountered Mordecai, which I will indent for dramatic effect. Okay, so this is my dramatic portrayal. As far as Haman is concerned, the blessing to Esau has reached its fulfillment in him. Bnei Israel are defeated and exiled from their homeland and from their destroyed temple, subjugated to a foreign king with no hope of ever returning. He, meaning Haman, is the de facto ruler. Haman is second in command to the king of the largest empire the world has seen. The king has given Haman so much power that he is literally able to make his own laws as he sees fit. Moreover, the king has commanded everyone to bow down to Haman in a demonstration of absolute subservience. What's more, if he plays his cards right, then he might actually succeed in maneuvering his way into the kingship itself. Then Haman sees Mordechai, the Jew, the Benjaminite, the descendant of Yaakov, refusing to bow. To Haman, this is not merely a personal affront. It is a beckoning call from his ancestors, charging him with a mission they could not complete. Revenge. Agag faced the Benjaminite descendant of Yaakov and was vanquished. Amalek faced the nation of Bnei Israel and was vanquished. Esav faced Yaakov himself and was vanquished. And here stands Haman at the end of his bloodline, in a position of power unparalleled by any of his forebears, with only one person standing in his way, Mordechai, the Benjaminite, descendant of Yaakov. Haman has the ability to succeed where his ancestors failed. He has the opportunity to reclaim for his grandfather Esau the blessing and the birthright, which are rightfully his. And there's only one way to do it. Kill all of Bnei Yaakov, just as Amalek attempted to do prior to Bnei Israel receiving the Torah. Quote, and Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the, end, the entire kingdom of Ahasuerosh, the people of Mordechai. End of dramatic reading. <laughs> Part four, icing on the cake. I hope that I have made a convincing case for the Targum's explanation of Haman's motive. Having said all of that, there is one more point I would like to mention. I do not want to call it evidence because I do not believe it to be on par with the evidence I have just presented. Instead, consider it to be icing on the cake. And if you find this icing to be too, too cloying, just scrape it off and focus on the cake. It has become fashionable in certain Jewish academic circles to seek out literary allusions in the text of Tanakh. 
I hope, as, although I am sometimes skeptical of making too much out of such findings, uh, there are some that seem just too spot on to be coincidental. Let us take another look at how the Megillah describes Haman's reaction upon considering Mordecai's actions. So the Puzzle says, however, it was despicable in his eyes, Vayibez Be'inav, to send his hand against Mordecai alone. Curiously enough, this form of the word despised, Vayibez, occurs in exactly one other place in all of Tanakh, namely, Esau's reaction upon considering the birthright that he sold to Yaakov. So it says in that Pasuk, Yaakov gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, got up and left, and Esau despised Vayibez, the birthright. Upon noticing this linguistic parallel, I wondered, is this a sign that the Targum's theory is correct, or am I reading too much into the Pesukim? I then consulted the Midrashim on this Pasuk in, in Esther Rabbah, which is the collection of Midrashim uh, on, on Megillus Esther. Lo and behold, Chazal make the same observation in Esther Rabbah 7.10. So they quote the Pasuk, and it was despicable in his eyes to send his hand against Mordecai alone. And the Midrash says, Haman was a despicable person who was a descendant of a despicable person. Uh, in Hebrew, Bazui ben Bazui. Elsewhere it is written, and Esav despised, Vayibez, the birthright. And here it is written, and it was despicable, Vayibez, in his eyes. And Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews. There you have it. Chazal explicitly link Haman's genocidal decree with Esav's feelings about selling his birthright, just as the Targum explained. It would appear that this literary, that this literary illusion was indeed intentional. Concluding thoughts. What is the takeaway from all this? The Targum's explanation clearly changes our reading of the Megillah, but what of it? I believe the answer lies in understanding what Amalek and Haman were attempting to do. According to the Targum and Rabag and Rav Reggio, Amalek wasn't an anti-Semite in the way that many people think of anti-Semites today. Amalek didn't simply hate the Jews, nor did Amalek seek to deny that the Jews are the chosen people. To the contrary, Amalek acknowledged our chosenness as determined by Yitzchak's bestowal of the superior blessing on Yaakov instead of Esau. What was Amalek's evil? Amalek's evil consisted in the fact that they acknowledged the reality of Hashgachas Hashem, of divine providence, and nevertheless sought to undermine it for the sake of dominance and power. When Amalek attacked B'nai Israel on their way out of Mitzrayim, they knew that Hashem had redeemed them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and they knew he was leading them through the wilderness en route to claim their inheritance in the land of Israel, as he promised to the Avos, the forefathers, on numerous occasions. And yet... Amalek saw that it had the upper hand, Amalek had the upper hand, and sought to annihilate B'nai Israel in order to reclaim and establish their dominion contrary to God's plan. I do not mean to downplay the evil of the Nazis, the white supremacists, certain factions of Americans and Europeans, and many other anti-Semitic groups. The evil and anti-Semitism of these wicked people and groups is very real and very dangerous. However, it is of a fundamentally different nature than that of Amalek. The anti-Semitism of these groups stems from bigotry, nationalism, xenophobia, and a host of other psychological causes. In contrast, the anti-Semitism of Amalek stems from a genuine recognition of the truth and reality of Hashem and his plan and a conscious effort to overturn it to satisfy their own lust for greatness. That, I believe, is what makes Amalek so dangerous. A fool who is blinded to reality by his own emotions still has hope. If you can, if you can enable him to see reality, there's a chance that he might change his mind. But a Russia, an evil person who recognizes reality and nevertheless chooses to go against it, there is no hope for such a Russia, nor is there a limit to what the Russia will do in his efforts to achieve his megalomaniacal vision. This is the difference between Haman and Mordechai. Haman recognized the truth and reality of Hashem and his plan for the Jews and humanity, but nevertheless sought to thwart his will in a misguided effort to achieve godlike supremacy. In contrast, Mordechai maintained his allegiance to the truth and reality of Haman. Sorry, <laughs> Well, weird slip there. I'm already getting them mixed up. Even worse. In contrast, Mordecai maintained his allegiance to the truth and reality of Hashem and his will, even when this meant putting himself and his people at the risk of retaliation by the enemies of Israel. 
The story of the Megillah is the story of which approach is destined to fail and which will succeed. Yitzchak's blessing to Yaakov ends with the words, Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Today on Purim, we emphasize this theme. Accursed is Haman, blessed is Mordechai. May we all merit to know the difference between the blessedness of Mordechai and the accursedness of Haman, and thereby merit the ultimate redemption. Okay, yeah. Uh, so having reread this idea, I think it still stands. And again, uh, I don't typically go for Midrashim, but this is an example of, of the layer of beauty and grandeur that the, Midri the Midrashic um, uh, layer uh, can add to the shot. So I hope you gained from uh, from this review or from this, uh, this, this blog post and uh, have a happy Purim and uh, may we all merit to see the ultimate redemption. If you've gained from what you've learned here today, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Rabbi Schneeweiss. Alternatively, if you would like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Torah Content Fund, my Venmo is at matt-schneeweiss, and my Zelle slash Chase QuickPay and PayPal are mattschneeweiss at gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with the financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor an article, share, or podcast episode, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbishnewos at gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading. And thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.